Let me invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the book of uh, the Old Testament book of Exodus, Exodus chapter ten. Looking this morning at verses one through twenty. If you have not brought a Bible with you this morning, there are black pew Bibles in the pew racks in front of you, and our passage this morning is found on page fifty-two, Exodus chapter ten. Looking at verses 1 through 20, we come this morning to the eighth of the ten plagues that God brings on Egypt. Uh, This morning, the plague of locusts. Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus chapter 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Then Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail." And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill all your houses and the houses of all your servants and all of the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Pharaoh were brought back to Pharaoh. And he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and our daughters and with our flocks and herds. For we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you, if I ever let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land, so that the land was darkened, 
And they ate all the plants in the field and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go to God in prayer. Our God, we ask that you would come and write your word on our hearts this morning. That you, O God, would use your word to work in our hearts, to change us, to transform us, to draw us closer to you this day. That we might faithfully live day by day in your presence. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Humility is central to the Christian life, absolutely central. The early church father, Augustine, wrote this, if you should ask me what are the ways of God, I would tell you that the first is humility, the second is humility, and the third is humility. Not that there are no other precepts to give, but if humility does not precede all that we do, our efforts are fruitless. And in fact, Jesus teaches this, doesn't he? The importance, the centrality of humility. The disciples came to him on one occasion and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And what does Jesus do? He takes a little child and puts puts him in the midst of them. And he says, whoever humbles himself like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Elsewhere, of course, Jesus says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And here we see, especially in verse 3, God essentially says to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Moses says to Pharaoh, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? This is the call, this is the command to Pharaoh to humble himself before the Lord. At heart, this means submitting to the word of God. Submitting to God's word. I want to look at this passage this morning in four different parts. The first we see in verses 1 to 6, we have a call to humility. A call to humility. God tells Moses, beginning in verse 1, to go into 
Pharaoh. He said, we read here in verse 1, I have hardened his heart. We're not going to deal with that right now. We're going to return to that. But here we see the beginning of the, the, the second of the third uh, cycle of three plagues. I talked last week about there being three cycles of three plagues. So here we have the second plague of the third of the three cycles of uh, plagues. And this one, uh, as the last one, is becoming more and more intense, ultimately leading up to the tenth, of course, the, the death of the firstborn. And notice he says here, he hardens Pharaoh's heart to do what? To show his signs among them, but also in verse 2, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So he does these things so that uh, these signs among them uh, to tell. It's a way of proclamation for teaching about God's unrivaled power, God's greatness, the God who is in absolute control of all creation, the God who is in absolute control of the universe. This includes, as the text says here in verse 2, dealing harshly with with them. I have dealt harshly with them. Dr. Currid, our a good friend and, and former uh, pastor puts it in his com- uh, commentary. Literally, the, the Hebrew word can be translated, I made a mockery of Egypt. Or one, one Hebrew dictionary or lexicon puts it, how I have made a toy of Egypt. He has done what he wants with them. Pharaoh basically is, has been playing with fire and he is getting burned, but that you might tell, that you might proclaim what God has has done. We see it in the later Passover celebration. The celebration includes a, a, a telling of what God has done in, in letting his people go from Egypt we also see it elsewhere in Scripture. In fact, in several of the Psalms, Psalm 78, Psalm 105. In Psalm 105, we actually read this. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them. And he, he lists several of them, water to blood, the frogs, the flies, the gnats. Then he comes to this one. He spoke, and the locusts came, young locusts without number, which devoured all the vegetation in their land and ate up the fruit of their ground. This is in part for teaching, for evangelism, to proclaim the power and the greatness of God, that he is the one true ruler of all the earth. And he is the God who brings both salvation as well as judgment. Verses 3 and 6 describe their audience before Pharaoh. And Moses raises the question, how long? Which is a, a good question. How long, 
Pharaoh? Are you going to refuse to obey God? Egypt is ruined. It's about to be totally ruined. How long? Locusts, by the way, are several times in the Old Testament and even in, in the New, in the book of Revelation. They're an instrument of judgment that God brings on nations. And for an agrarian society like ancient Egypt, absolutely devastating. Verse 5 tells us it's especially devastating, especially after the hail. And now the locusts are going to eat all that's, that's left. And verse 6 tells us that there is nothing ever like it. From the day that they came on the earth to this day, nothing has ever happened like this. The text says. Again, as Dr. Curd puts it, the time of Egypt's great glory is about to end. It's about to end. The key question here is how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me, God asks? Of course, this is a question that we can ask of ourselves, we can ask of others, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before the, before the Lord? How long will you remain on the fence with regard to Jesus Christ? How long will you continue to indulge your sinful habits? How long, Christian, professing Christian, will you continue to neglect your prayer life? How long will you hold back part of your life from Christ instead of, as Scripture tells us, surrendering all to the Lord Jesus Christ? great preacher Charles Sermon was preaching on this passage, and he said this to his congregation, forget Pharaoh and only think of yourself. Let the Lord Jesus Christ himself, with the thorn-crowned head and the pierced hand, stand by your pew and looking right down into your soul. Say in his matchless tone of music, the music of the heart of love, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? How long? Secondly, we see in our text that Pharaoh is hardened and not humbled. We see that in verses 7 to 11. Pharaoh is hardened and not humbled. Now note, first of all, before we look at those verses in particular, notice that this passage begins and ends with this idea that God has hardened Pharaoh's heart. Verse 1, go into Pharaoh, the Lord says to Moses, for I have hardened his heart. 
verse 20, as we end this passage, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go. It's, it's what we call an inclusio in biblical uh, terms and technical terms. It, it bookends this passage. It holds it together. The Lord had hardened his heart. We saw the original language back in chapter 4, verse 21, when God first appears to Moses. Go to Pharaoh, but I will harden his heart. Now, we've seen elsewhere that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. We read elsewhere that his heart was hardened. But here again, we have this reminder that God is sovereign over human hearts. He's sovereign over human hearts. And he does this, why? As verse 2 puts it, that you may know that I am the Lord. He demonstrates his sovereignty. He does it to display his own glory. And indeed, that's why we have ten plagues on Pharaoh and a hardened heart of Pharaoh. So in verses 7 to 11, we see that Pharaoh is hardened. Why? To reveal God's glory. In verse 7, we see that even Pharaoh's servants... Plead with Pharaoh. Don't you understand, they say to him in verse 7, that Egypt is ruined. Well, it's going to be completely ruined by the time this plague is over. Don't you understand, Pharaoh? It started to hit close to home for Pharaoh and his servants. But he's not quite humbled yet. But he listens to his servants, his, his counselors, and he, we see in verses 8 and following, he brings Moses and, and Aaron back in, and he, he says, go. But then he says, but which ones? Who's going? And of course, Moses and Aaron reply, well, we're all going. Our wives are going, our children are going, our animals are going, we're all going out for this sacrifice. But Pharaoh wants to make sure that they return. So he says in verse 10, seemingly with some sacrifice, uh, sa- uh, sarcasm, sorry, the Lord be with you if I ever let you go. The Lord be with you. Maybe the idea is, yeah, the Lord really will be with you if I let you and everyone else go which is actually going to prove true, be, be, uh, prove to be true. But it's sarcasm here. He's not going to let them go. Phil Riken writes in his commentary that Pharaoh assumed he could bargain with God. Pharaoh assumed he could bargain with God. He saw himself on equal terms. With God. No, let's let's talk about this. Not everyone, just the men, can go, and that's how he ends this audience before driving Moses and and Aaron out. He can bargain with God, as many people think they can today as well. 
As Dr. Riken goes on to put it, we must take God on his terms, not ours. His terms, not ours. This is true of many people today. They're happy with God, but on my terms. I'm happy with God, as long as it's on my terms, not his terms. The theologian H. Richard Niebuhr famously described theological liberalism in this way. He referred to it, summed it up in this way, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That guts the gospel. It guts scripture. More than that, we don't want Christ to tell us not to take up our cross. We want to be able to live and do as we please. The followers of Christ, we, brothers and sisters in Christ, must guard against being hardened. And we must remain humble as followers of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, Augustine wrote this, Many can more easily give all they have to the poor than themselves become poor in spirit. Many can more easily give all they have to the poor than themselves become poor in spirit, humbling themselves before God. Third, we see in this passage in verses 12 to 15, Egypt and its gods are humbled. Moses is told by the Lord to stretch out his hand for the locusts. They, they come, they eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. Verse 12 uh, tells us Moses does it, he stretches it out, an east wind comes and the locusts uh, come. This is, of course, a destruction of the crops, but it's also an attack, as we've seen in the earlier plagues, on Egypt's gods. There's the god Min, who was the god of the crops, the god Senehem, who was the god who provided protection against the destruction of insects. He was not very helpful here in this plague. Every plant, verse 12 says, all that the hail has left. The word all in these four verses, 12 to 15, is used 11 times. The crops are completely wiped out. Their living, their livelihood, their land is in ruins. Completely in ruins. God brings an east wind. That would be the normal prevailing wind in Egypt to bring these locusts. It's interesting that the locusts in verse 19 are going to be driven out of Egypt by a west wind, which would have been practically unheard of in Egypt, a miraculous work of God. We also see here that the the land is darkened in verse 15 from these locusts. There were so many of them, so dense 
was this swarm of locusts, but the word darkened we often see uh, uh, with, in, in conjunction with judgment. And one thing that we see here is that redemption, God's salvation, involves what we could say a, a decreation. Or we could call it a creation reversal. In fact, that's exactly what's going to happen when Christ comes again and there is a new creation. This creation will be no more. But redemption involves a, a kind of decreation. God here arms himself with creation. He uses it as a weapon. And why does he do this? He does it to show that he alone is the victor. No one else can use creation as a weapon. There's no defense against creation. Only God can do that, and he will be victorious. Pharaoh has set himself up as a, as a god. Now he looks pretty small compared to the one true God who created all things, who rules all things. But redemption means tearing down strongholds. All that sets itself up against God. My redemption, my salvation, includes tearing down my strongholds of sin. Your redemption, your salvation, includes tearing down your strongholds of sin, anything in sinful opposition to the will of God. And of course, that's our struggle, but it's, it's God's work. We need to look to God for help in that battle. Fourth and finally, we see a false humility in verses 16 through 20. We'll look at this briefly. A false humility. We see that Pharaoh brings back into his presence uh, Moses and Aaron in verse 16. Confesses his sin. I've sinned against the Lord your God and against you, he says. As Matthew Henry puts it, Pharaoh pretended here to humble himself. Notice several things about Pharaoh in this false humility. First of all, he says in verse 16, Your God, I have sinned against the Lord, your God. He still does not recognize Yahweh as the God the one true God. He's simply still your God, the God of the Hebrews, not the God of the universe, not the God of all creation, not the one true God. Secondly, in verse 17, he asked Moses to forgive his sin. Barking up the wrong tree. Third, he asks Moses to pray for him. He doesn't pray for himself. 
We also see here in, in this passage, in verse 17, he uses the word once. Now therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. Once, he denies he's a sinner. He minimizes his sin here, as Matthew Henry puts it. Once, it's, it's rare. But now I'm repenting of it because it has brought me major trouble and grief. And he also asks here to remove this death from me. Not this sin, this death. As Matthew Henry puts it, Pharaoh deprecates the plague of locusts, not the plague of a hard heart, which was much more dangerous. Deprecates the plague of locusts, not the plague of a hard heart, which is much more dangerous. We are either humble or humbled. At the end of the day, that's, that's the choice we have. To be humble or to be humbled. The key, of course, is in verse 2, that you may know that I am the Lord. Only the humble can know the Lord. The humble person recognizes their sin their need of the Lord, their need of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet again, as Matthew Henry points out, God humbles those who will not humble themselves. All will be humbled. He humbles those who will not humble themselves. Some are humbled in this life for salvation. Some in the life to come for eternal damnation. It all will recognize that the Lord is God of all creation. As Paul puts it, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some on their way to to eternal salvation, some to judgment. The good news is that God is not, the good news is that God knows that we cannot of our own humble of our humble ourselves god also knows that we cannot save ourselves we know god not because we humble ourselves primarily but because there was another one who humbled himself and that is the lord jesus christ See this wonderful passage, we're not going to read it this morning. We'll actually be looking at it in adult Sunday school next Sunday morning. Philippians chapter 2. Christ, who was eternal God, took the form of a servant, was born a human being, and he humbled himself even to death on the cross. That's how we know God. That's how we know the forgiveness of our sins. 
if Christ humbled himself, if he gave himself for us, he calls us, brothers and sisters in Christ, to humble ourselves and to live for him. Let's pray. Our God, how we thank you that you are a great and mighty God, a God who loves his people, a God who gave his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live and to die on the cross that we might have newness of life. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who indeed humbled himself. And so, O God, we ask that you would enable us to walk humbly day by day with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.